0: welcome to connecting the docks a podcast from the state archives of north carolina where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past now here's your host john haran
1: Again, welcome to Connecting the Docs. This is your host, John Haran. And once again, we've got the outgoing director of the Outer Banks History Center, Samantha Crisp, here with us. Uh, We are here to wrap up our series connecting the fictional versions of Eastern North Carolina with the true stories that we can find in the archives. So as I said, this is the third in our series. In the first episode, we covered African-American communities, segregation, and the Dismal Swamp. In the second episode, we talked about truancy and the DeFabio case in Dare County. In all three of these episodes, we examine the geography and history that serve as the inspiration for the novel Where the Crawdads Sing. Of course, as we know, Where the Crawdads Sing is a novel by Delia Owens and has been adapted to the big screen by director Olivia Newman. Of course, there's been a little bit of controversy surrounding the author. We're not going to get into that here, but instead we're going to look at some of the real inspirations for the book. Briefly, the book follows Kaya, a young girl growing up in the marshlands of North Carolina, abandoned by her family and isolated from most of society. Kaya learns how to live on her own and off the land. Uh, Today, I thought we'd look at foodways and particularly the oystering culture present in the Outer Banks. So in the book, Kaya realizes she needs to make money for herself and begins collecting mussels to sell to local shop owner Jumpin', who pays her about 50 cents per bag. On the couple of dollars she earns from her mussels each week, she's able to buy gas for her boat and minimal groceries from Jumpins.
0: With the mussel money she bought matches, a candle, and grits. Kerosene and soap would have to wait for another croaker full. It took all her might not to buy a sugar daddy instead of the candle. Later, at the shack, when she unpacked the tiny pile of supplies, she saw a yellow and red surprise at the bottom of the bag. Not too grown up for a sugar daddy jumping head dropped
1: inside. So, of course, in the book they're talking about mussels. But first things first, Sam, can you talk about some differences between oystering and muscling? And was one more prevalent?
2: Yeah, sure.
3: So there's a lot more information out there related to oystering on the North Carolina coast, at least historically speaking. Oystering has been a major industry on our coast for over a hundred years dating even farther back than that, quite honestly. Mussels contributed to the local economy too, particularly in the button industry. I believe they made buttons from their shells. But when mussel populations were decimated in the early 1900s, it appears that they've had a much more difficult time coming back from that. And that might be because mussels are different from other bivalves in that they have a parasitic larval stage. So in their larval stage, they grow on the gills of fish. And this probably makes them a lot harder to propagate. So it seems like, at least on the outer banks, oysters played a much bigger role in both the local economy and in local food ways. But as far as why mussels might have appeared in the book, they may have been easier to harvest by hand in small quantities, which might explain why Kaya chose to gather them and sell them. And also, the other thing to keep in mind is mussels are a freshwater bivalve, while oysters require saltwater or brackish water. So if Kaya lived near a freshwater creek, she wouldn't have had oysters readily available.
1: That all makes sense. Since oystering seems to be a little bit more prevalent, there's another piece that's interesting to talk about, and the book is set in the 1950s and 60s. Of course, I think the history of oystering in the Outer Banks is much older than that, right?
3: Yeah, so I'll start off by saying oysters have always been a really big part of North Carolina's economy. They've historically represented a steady average of about 5 to 20% of the overall catch for North Carolina fisheries. And they've long been strongly associated with North Carolina's foodways, and they were popular even with the indigenous peoples who lived here prior to colonization. But prior to the 1880s, oystering, as far as a business opportunity, was actually not very lucrative. Oysters were traditionally gathered for primarily subsistence, or to trade for other goods, sort of like how Kaya was doing, or to sell cheaply for fertilizer. They were primarily used for fertilizer. But throughout the early 1880s, the popularity of oysters in northern markets started to grow, and so did their economic potential. So by the mid-1880s, the oyster industry was booming down here. And this is partly because oysters were a versatile product that was being consumed by people from all walks of life. You know, rich people, impoverished people, any kind of person was consuming oysters and purchasing them.
1: Yeah. And so that's a little bit about who's getting into the oysters. How about techniques for oystering? You mentioned commercial work. So is there a difference between hand farming and commercial work? Or was it just that there's really no technique other than hand farming and they employed a lot of people?
3: Yeah, so there's two, uh, there's actually two kind of main methods of harvesting oysters, at least around this time, the 1880s when we're talking about. And that was either, like you said, by using hand tongs or by using commercial dredges. So hand tongs were designed to be used by a single person. There were several different designs of oyster tongs, but they basically amounted to kind of a really long rake attached to a basket that you would drag along the sea floor to kind of rake up the oysters as you were sort of passing through on a boat. You could also use them while you were walking along the water front to harvest smaller quantities of oysters if you were just kind of you know gathering them for yourself or for a hobby. Commercial dredges, on the other hand, worked the same way, but obviously they were really, really big. Um, So they were much bigger rakes pulled by much bigger boats, and they could bring in hundreds or even thousands more oysters in a particular time frame compared to hand harvesting. And then during the oyster boom, there was a lot of disagreement over whether hand harvesting versus dredging was better for the state's economy. And this actually led to a pretty significant conflict known as the North Carolina Oyster Wars.
1: I love the idea. I need to know more about what the North Carolina Oyster Wars are or were.
3: Yeah, sure. It's a really interesting kind of moment in North Carolina's history. So in the mid-1880s, like I said, the oyster industry was booming, and North Carolina conducted a major overhaul of its oyster laws and started crafting regulations to encourage local watermen to cultivate private beds and also to allow larger dredging operations to access beds that were in the public domain. The law also established a board of shellfish commissioners that was charged with conducting a survey of the state's oyster beds. And a man by the name of Lieutenant Francis Winslow was commissioned by the US Navy to oversee this survey. So Winslow did this survey and determined that the North Carolina sounds were an untapped resource for oystermen. And his report that he put out regarding this survey created a surge among both local harvesters and actually out-of-state dredgers who wanted to take advantage of the state's new kind of lax laws.
1: So you're saying that these oyster wars sort of extended across state lines. It wasn't just within North Carolina.
3: Yeah, exactly. So like I said before, the market in the north was really powerful and there was a lot of demand for oysters. And so North Carolina, by no means, was the only state sort of looking into this industry. And in fact, Chesapeake Bay oyster beds to the north, kind of off of Virginia and Maryland, had been greatly depleted due to over-harvesting because of this big oyster boom. So Maryland and Virginia oystermen began coming down to the Pamlico Sound here in our state to dredge oysters, both for sale and for breeding, at kind of an unprecedented rate. And unsurprisingly, uh, local. water Watermen didn't really take kindly to this. They sort of became increasingly angry at this uh, major uptick in competition. So the state of North Carolina responded with a law passage again, they passed a legal restriction in 1889 that prohibited non-residents from dredging in North Carolina waters. So oysters could only be harvested by non-residents using the traditional hand-tong method. And although North Carolina residents were still allowed to dredge, they did provide that sort of bullet point in there, the dredging season was severely restricted. So dredging sort of dropped off forever. But the problem was that this law didn't actually provide for adequate enforcement of these new rules, and so out-of-state dredgers continued to poach oysters pretty regularly. It was very common out here. And so one interesting thing that kind of grew out of this, Lieutenant Francis Winslow, who had recently completed the oyster survey that I talked about. As soon as he did that, he retired from military service and actually created his own private company, the Pamlico Oyster Company, so that he could claim a share of this North Carolina oyster boom. And a lot of the locals out here believed that Winslow had actually manipulated his position and used his oyster survey to kind of keep the best beds a secret so that he could lay claim to them himself. So there's um, some interesting kind of claims there. But one location where oysters grew like in great abundance was off the island of Ocracoke, which is here in the outer banks, the southern outer banks uh, in Hyde County. And by 1890, this area had kind of become the subject of an ownership dispute between Winslow's company and the local watermen who were still kind of hand harvesting there. And the locals asked Winslow to stop dredging for oysters. And his response was to use armed force to prevent individual oystermen from accessing the beds. And this conflict sort of grew over the course of several weeks. And then according to local legend, the entire community of Ocracoke, which is a pretty small island and especially back then was not a big population, but the entire community of Ocracoke sort of took arms and staged an uprising to threaten Winslow's crew to get them out of their oyster beds. And this conflict apparently just eventually blew over and nothing really ever came of it. But this kind of first skirmish that we had here was a portent of greater hostilities that were soon to come.
1: That's amazing. So there's a bunch that I want to explore here. I think the biggest piece is this idea that there's a small skirmish. So there's actual physical confrontations that are coming out. we got to talk about that. I want to kind of highlight this Lieutenant Francis Winslow for a second. It's fascinating to me that he would have said that it's an untapped potential. I'm sure the North Carolinians are looking around thinking, well, we're doing just fine here, buddy. So I don't know why you're coming down and saying it's untapped. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is this notion that he decided to benefit off of his own survey. I think that's really fascinating. So where are these sources coming from?
3: That's a good question. Uh, so, So we have a copy of Winslow's original report. We have a copy of his original oyster map here at the Outer Banks History Center. Um, Where he mapped out all of the beds, and you can actually, you know, you can, if you wanted to come to the Outer Banks History Center, or we've got the map linked online. You want to take a look at his survey map and see if he truly did kind of conceal the Ocracoke oyster beds. That's something you could determine using that information. But yeah, it's interesting to me. Um, So as far as documentation that we have that he, you know, left the military, it's pretty clear that he did right after he did this survey. I mean, it's just sort of in the public record, right? So there's primarily in secondary sources, it kind of talks about his career path, but we definitely, you know, it's easy to prove that he was in the Navy and then all of a sudden he was in oystering. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I want to, I want to make clear that I don't think he had, you know, he wasn't pushed out of the Navy by any means. It really was that he came down here, did all this research and all of a sudden thought, man, this is a, this is a market I could break into and have, make a lot more money and really kind of just left a, you know, a distinguished Naval career to jump into this, like you said, what he called an untapped market down here.
1: It's amazing. And so then he does this and upsets the locals, I'm sure on a number of levels, and they use a phrase staged an uprising. Are there actual physical confrontations and skirmishes here?
3: Yeah, it's difficult to actually determine that with certainty. <laughs> so, um, so after this, this sort of Winslow versus Ocracoke battle or non-battle, depending on who you talk to, stories about out-of-state oyster dredgers, either threats of violence or acts of violence to locals, they started to kind of spread like wildfire. But the thing is, it seems like a lot of them were apparently exaggerated or even some of them might have been fabricated entirely. Um, So the kinds of claims that they were making, independent local oystermen said that they were basically helpless against these, you know, big bad Virginians and their big boats, their Winchester rifles, their 36-pound guns. They really made it seem like they were, if not openly violent, at least very hostile and implying that they were going to become violent. And then the other thing is claims were being made that in the process of dredging with these bigger out-of-state boats, poachers were actually destroying nets that belonged to local shad fishermen. And shad was our other major commercial fishing product at the time. So they really kind of made this case of like, you know, they're killing our oyster industry, they're killing our shad industry, it's getting really bad out here, y'all have to do something about it. And so finally in 1891, the North Carolina General Assembly responded again and passed a new law authorizing Governor Dan Fowle to use military force to combat the poaching. So the oyster wars of the North Carolina coast, as we sort of call them and as we know them, really came to a head on January 21st, 1891. And that's when the steamship Vesper uh, departed Elizabeth City with a detachment of armed guards uh, with the goal of locating out-of-state watermen illegally pirating oysters in the state's waters and then driving them away. And meanwhile, the General Assembly issued a new, even stricter oyster law in March of 1891 that forbade dredging anywhere in North Carolina waters. So even for North Carolina residents, we couldn't dredge anymore. It also required licenses for oystermen, and it established a permanent position of oyster commissioner, whose job it was to just patrol the area and look, look for these poachers. And Governor Fowle's efforts did succeed in stalling the you know, quote-unquote invasion uh, by outside oystermen, and throughout the 1890s, oyster harvest started to decrease steadily. And I want to be sure to point out that we, you know, since you asked about physical confrontations and skirmishes, we have no sort of written documentation or written historical record indicating that violence ever escalated to the point that local watermen claimed that it did. But even though a single shot was never proven to have been fired during North Carolina's oyster wars, for coastal families, the takeaway here is that the conflict was all too real and very destructive and something they wanted to avoid.
1: We'll learn more about the so-called conflict and the response of the state government after this short break.
2: Hey, I'm sorry, I'm late. What are you looking at? Oh, I'm looking at the Western Regional Archives Facebook page. Western Archives? Yeah, the Western Regional Archives. They're in Asheville. They're a branch of the state archives in North Carolina, but they specialize in collecting and preserving the history and heritage of the western part of the state. What all do they have? Well, they collect all kinds of things, personal and family papers, organizational records, diaries, architectural plans, photographs. They really have a ton of neat stuff. Wow! Yeah, they even have the records of Black Mountain College. You know, that was that experimental school that operated between 1933 and 1957. Have you ever heard of Joseph Albers? Isn't he that guy that painted the squares? That's right, he's the guy that painted the squares. He actually taught at Black Mountain College. That's so cool! Can anybody visit Western Regional Archives? Oh, they sure can. The Archives is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. But the archivists there can help you anytime. They're super friendly and helpful. So even if you can't come by for a visit, you can call or email them. They're great. Great. Now let's get going or we'll miss our reservation.
1: if there is an influx of of out of state and there must have been to have a response from the governor right i mean there must have been at least some you know maybe there's not actual physical violence but there must be some i mean maybe not to this level of you know Winchester rifles and large boats and 36 pound guns i mean it sounds like a siege but it, i'm not sure that that actually happened but there must have been something to have some response and i'm interested do you happen to know i mean so that, that those the Virginians larger boats Winchester rifles 36 pound guns that's very specific is that is that something you know, how do we know that those are the things that they mentioned? Is that something that was written and in, 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 you know in a letter and sent to the, gov- the governor or the stories that are told? How, how, how do we know that those things were kind of shared?
3: Yeah, where you find this sort of documentation is in local newspapers at the time. In particular, the Wilmington, I think it's the Weekly Star, the Evening Star, is a newspaper that reported heavily on these oyster wars. And you'll see just sort of little snippets of, you know, not interviews exactly, but claims from local watermen who say things like that. So there's also been, you know, a great deal of, like I said, secondary research that has been done. We have articles and, you know, theses and things like that that were done on the oyster wars that traced these, Claims to sort of individual documents. So it's a little bit difficult to kind of suss out the sort of oral history from the actual history, or at least the written history of what occurred here. But you do, you know, there are accounts that you can find that indicate
2: these sorts of things.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as you say, the the conflict was real because even if the impact was minimal in terms of an invasion, in terms of a siege from Virginia at the same time created these new laws that are restrictive and so you're not dredging anymore and so you have to handpick that takes more time that's going to decrease the economy because you're not being able to produce as much and when there's decrease in production there's decrease in sort of trade right and so all of these things they did influence and impact these coastal communities and these coastal families and i'd be interested i mean you mentioned the shad economy that fishery was kind of cut down because of this oyster conflict i would be interested to see if there's research Or if there's other ways we can access that in the archives, you know, that you might know about that we can talk about how the oyster wars did influence and detract from other fishery and economies of that kind of, you know, coastal region there.
3: Yeah, it's not research I've personally done, but it definitely would be interesting to try and find that out. I know that the shad industry was approaching its own sort of decline due to overfishing at the same time period, so it would take some kind of teasing out to determine whether the you know the shad industry at this time was being hurt because of the oyster wars or just because there were less shad in the waters. Um, but that's definitely something that you could take a look at. And the other thing is, you know, it's you have to kind of keep in mind that the Outer Banks is a very remote region. It's isolated and far from Raleigh and the local government even today when we have bridges and roads and things like that. But in the 1880s, it was probably very difficult to really get anyone in the General Assembly to care about what was happening on the Outer Banks out here just because it was so far away and so isolated. And so, you know, even if a lot of these claims were fabricated, I can see why locals would need to sort of take that step and go to that degree of fabrication to make their point that this is really hurting our community and we need you to do something about it.
1: Yeah, that's a terrific point. I mean, you're talking about today to get there from Raleigh. It's several hours and we have 70 mile an hour speed limits and bridges and modern cars and modern equipment and all of this stuff and it still takes that much time and if you think about pre-industrial and i mean i guess you're in an industrial society but in a pre-automobile society so you're relying on horses and boats and human power as opposed to mechanical power en masse yeah it makes sense that if you're trying to get attention of the governor and the government in raleigh you're gonna have to be pretty squeaky if you're that far away that's for sure true is there other instances that, off the top of your head, of the Outer Banks being squeaky to get things done in Raleigh?
3: Ooh, um, probably. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think. I, you know, we've we have a long history of kind of the. So, so they call this area the graveyard of the Atlantic. And the reason why that is is because our shores, our water off the coast of the Outer Banks is very dangerous for ships that come through here. But at the same time, especially historically in the 18th century and the 19th century, that's that was a major kind of shipping route to come from the north to go to like the Caribbean islands. There was lots of boat activity out here. And so there were lots of wrecks. There were lots of, you know, dangerous situations that people were put in. And I know that it took some campaigning on the part of people that lived out here to get things like lighthouses built or the United States Life Saving Service established that became the Coast Guard that was, you know, sort of charged with rescuing people on wrecks. There was a lot of, um, I don't know that it, I would say that it was them being, you know, like shifty or fabricating anything, but there were a lot of people that like had to die <laughs> before before we could get um, our legislators to kind of care about this situation and invest money and invest time and, and manpower into improving the sort of navigation of the North Atlantic coast. So it happens for sure.
1: Yeah, that's another little segue for us to talk about the graveyard of the Atlantic. There's a lot of ghost stories that come out of that. You mentioned Governor Fowle earlier. We have a ghost story a podcast episode talking about him and the governor's mansion in our previous season that I would recommend people listen to. So that is really an interesting piece. Now, for better or worse, business seems to be booming in the late 1800s and then into the 20th century. Now, What's going on by mid-century where we're talking about where the book is?
3: Yeah, so like I said, so after, after they passed this more restrictive law, oyster harvesting kind of dropped off naturally, and then by 1897, the General Assembly had concluded that oyster beds had recovered enough to actually justify easing those restrictions, and dredging was once again legalized, I believe probably just for um, you know North Carolina dredging operations. So there was another kind of brief surge in activity for a couple years, but then all of a sudden, just kind of out of nowhere, the oyster harvest just dried up in 1900, And this may be due to overharvesting or it may be due to some unexplained natural cause like shoaling in the area, or um, it's possible that the population might have been decimated during the 1899 San Sirocco hurricane, which is a, a huge hurricane that really decimated this area in 1899. But, you know, either way, we can't really pinpoint a cause here, but the state's oyster industry dropped off at that point and it never really recovered from that drop off. Oystering had significantly sort of been abandoned as a commercial pursuit because it just wasn't profitable anymore after that. And a lot of watermen actually decided instead to start working in the burgeoning tourism industry, which was kind of taking off at the same time so, you know, especially in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, it became clear that commercial oystering wasn't so much a great sort of career pursuit anymore. But in the meantime, we were getting more roads, we were getting more infrastructure, there were more hotels being built, and tourism was really becoming kind of the new thing out on the Outer Banks. So a lot of people actually switched their focus to that to make a living.
1: Wow. And that's what a lot of people know the Outer Banks today about the with the tourism piece and all of that. Before we move on, I'd like to so you use the word shoaling. Maybe it's my own ignorance, but I don't know what that means.
3: That's basically where the sand layer or the seafloor underneath a body of water, whether it's a sound or the ocean or whatever, just sort of changes its depth and its position. Um, so in order for boats to be able to pass through a specific waterway, they need to have a certain depth of water kind of assured so that they can get through it. And, you know, obviously if your boat is heavy enough that it needs to have, say, six feet of water to get through, if a storm happens and stirs up sand on the seafloor and accumulates sand in kind of a big pile or a big mound that suddenly creates like a four-foot water depth, then you're going to, you know, run your boat aground trying to get to where you had previously gone to. So this, you know, and this, I'm speaking about boats, but shoaling this idea of like a changing a constantly changing seafloor contributes to, you know, sort of ecological issues and problems with the local, you know, sea life population too. Because again, they sort of, oysters obviously cling to the seafloor, they make their home on the seafloor. So if, you know, a big storm comes and, and pushes their, all of their sand out of their traditional home, then they, you know, you can't find them there anymore.
1: Yeah. Either they don't make it, they move, or whatever, but they're not where you left them anyway. So that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that explanation. And so we're talking about how, you know, the tourism industry has started to take off by the 1940s for sure and continues to today. But what about oystering today? How does oystering enter the culture? I mean, it seems like it's on a much less, in terms of scale, much smaller scale than it used to be, but surely it's still part of the culture.
3: Yeah, for sure, oysters are still very much part of the local food economy, and in particular, you'll hear about lots of local restaurants and businesses kind of going out of their way to support aquaculture and sustainable oyster farming. So, um, particularly here in Dare County on our beaches, a lot of restaurants will recycle oyster shells and give them to oyster farmers so that they can start new oyster colonies to, you know, make sure that we're continually kind of regenerating our population of oystering. And there are still commercial oyster. Sort of operations out here, but you know, not like there were in the 1880s for sure. One thing I do want to point out is that many people who live in this area harvest seafood by hand for personal consumption or to supplement their income, just like Kaya does in the book, and they've done that for centuries. Kaya does it for subsistence, and generations of coastal residents have done that too, but honestly, a lot of people do it just because they enjoy it. Local shellfish are still. A huge part of the diet and the cuisine out here, a lot of people travel to the Outer Banks specifically for, you know, not just oysters, but all of our local kind of shellfish and local seafood. It's definitely become more of like a tourism destination piece than it was previously.
1: That's something that I wanted to kind of break in and ask you about that. So you think about the Outer Banks, you think about tourism, you think about if you're thinking about fishing, you're thinking about maybe chartering and going out and doing some sort of Atlantic big, big, big game. It's not big game. It's big fish. You're thinking about offshore chartering, you're thinking about marlin, you're thinking about that sort of thing. But is there really sort of a industry of tourism around oystering or shellfish in that sort of sense?
3: Hmm. Probably not as its own sort of microcosm. But there are I mean, insofar as shellfish are part of just kind of the local cuisine out here, I definitely think there is a you know, kind of a tourism focus on just regional seafood and people come here to eat our seafood all the time. So I know one of the, uh, we have a big, um, we have a big food festival here every spring called the Taste of the Outer Banks. And one of the most popular events that sells out every year as part of this festival is there's like a local oyster tour where you'll get actually taken out on a boat to an existing oyster bed you'll dredge up your own oysters right there in the water you can like shuck one and and eat it right fresh out of the sound or um, however you want to do it and then they'll take they'll put you on a bus and they'll take you to a local restaurant where they'll prepare something with those oysters that you've just you know yourself kind of harvested so you can kind of see how it happens from literally from the farm to the plate right so um, so that's definitely people are interested in that sort of thing and people really appreciate that sort of thing
1: That's really fascinating and is that part of oyster week?
3: Um, no so oyster week is a uh, separate sort of I think it's just a state of North Carolina kind of observance honestly I believe oyster week happens in October I need to check I need to check myself on that. Um, but that's just kind of a uh, you know a statewide initiative to appreciate the value of the oyster and the value of the oyster industry in the state. Whereas Taste of the Beach is more of a uh, just a general like almost like a restaurant week that you would have in other towns. Like local restaurants and local food producers are really kind of put on a pedestal.
1: Tremendous. And what about other kind of cultural connections between oystering and the Outer Banks?
3: Yeah. So my favorite one, personally, is the. Old Christmas celebration that's held in the town of Rodanthe every year. So, Rodanthe is a small village on Hatteras Island, and it's one of the only communities in the world that still celebrates Christmas on the date that it would have fallen you know, on the old Julian calendar, which was January 5th. So, every year, um, you know, obviously everyone celebrates regular Christmas on December 25th, and then the community of Rodanthe has its own separate celebration for Old Christmas sometime around January 5th. And for whatever reason, oysters play a huge part in this celebration every year. There's a big oyster roast, and the whole town, like literally everyone in town, comes together outside the community center to roast oysters and shuck them and eat them together at community tables out on the lawn. There's also historically been an annual oyster shoot that day, which if you're you know familiar with a turkey shoot, it works a lot like a turkey shoot except the winner of the contest, um, the shooting contest, takes home a bushel of oysters instead of a turkey at the end. And the Old Christmas Oyster Roast is still held annually to this day. I mean, right up until, you know, they had it in 2022. They're still having it every year. So it's clear that oystering is still a major part of the Outer Banks culture and heritage. You know, maybe not commercially so much, but definitely culturally and definitely on a, a smaller scale.
1: That's all. That's all been tremendous. This has been marvelous. Thank you for sharing it. You've given us a lot of food for thought, if you'll accept the pun. But I really appreciate you sharing this slice of foodways in the Outer Banks. And thanks for connecting the docs for us as we wrap up this look at the history of the Outer Banks and the inspiration for the book and film Where the Crawdads Sing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Connecting the Docks. A quick reminder that we'll be taking a short break for the holidays, but we will be back with more content in the new year. And thanks to our guest, Samantha Crisp, for our discussion today and for all of her work as the director of the Outer Banks History Center. She's moving on to bigger and better things, uh, and she will be missed. And then thanks again to our voiceover specialist, Tiana West, to our producers, Brooke Chuka, Shauna Carr, and Josh Hager. And finally, to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dodson. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocks.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People, at ncarchives.wordpress.com.